welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great, thank you. How are you? I, I'm doing okay. Uh, leading up to the, the uh, midterms on Tuesday, I'm a bit anxious about all that, but uh, you know, we will see what happens in our, in our next episode and we can reflect maybe on, on the midterms. Uh, right, so a week ago, uh, we were all shocked by the news that uh, Paul Pelosi, the husband of uh, Nancy Pelosi, was attacked in uh, their home in San Francisco by a man wielding a, a hammer. Um, and this is a kind of political violence or attacks on politicians and their families that seems to be on the rise in recent years. There seems to be increased threats to politicians. Um, that has been documented by the FBI and by other groups, uh, the Secret Service. So we thought we would talk about the history of violence and threats of violence against politicians and, and what this particular moment seems to mean. Yeah, I mean, I would say a couple of things, David. Um, this seems to be a transnational phenomenon because, mm. of course, two MPs have been killed in here in the UK in, in recent years. Sure. Uh, and so we've seen that. And, and the... Very prominent former uh, Prime Minister of Pakistan, which uh, Imran Khan, the former cricketer, was shot yesterday. Uh, so, so and the assassination in Japan. Yep, that's Shinzo right. Abe. Of Shinzo Abe. So, so uh, I mean, we're obviously, as usual, going to speak about the American context for this, but there does seem to be uh, something. Um, Something in the air at the moment, mm. making people very, very angry. And just to, to, to illustrate the point you made about the. Uh, prevalence of this or this uh, the apparently increased mm. prevalence of this the capitol police who are responsible for protecting uh, members of congress uh, have seen i believe the figure was a tenfold increase in th threats against members of congress since 2000 between 2016 and 2021 mm. they don't have I, I didn't find figures for 2000 uh, for 22 but i would imagine that um <laughs> they haven't gone down yeah. uh so there was a there was a tenfold increase in the, in that period from 2016 to 21 um in terms of major threats there were, have been around 75 indictments resulting and this is just in terms of threats towards members of congress during that period the partisan breakdown of these is quite interesting because about a third of them come from the right aimed at Democratic politicians or politicians who are perceived to be on, on the left. Hmm. Um, quarter come from the left, aimed at politicians on the right. Mm -hmm. And the rest are kind of unclassifiable. And we're going to get to the kind of categories of uh, sure. ways of thinking about these. And the unclassifiable ones are, are interesting in their own way. So so there, there's certainly been an increase in violent rhetoric manifesting itself in, in terms of threats. One could see January 6th, and that's not really what we're focusing mm. on today, as a kind of mass outbreak of, sure. of, of, of violence directed at members of Congress. But what we're, I think what, we're looking, what we want to look at mm. and provide some historic context for is the threats of violence against politicians um, across U.S. history and, and try to provide some context for, for, for the current moment. So uh, how deeply rooted is this, David? I think you have... Periods of time in American history where, where there is a lot of threats to, to politicians and where, where violence against politicians is, is seen by some people as, as a legitimate way of articulating political grievances or, or, or political differences. Um, you know, thinking about the, you know, obviously there's been lots of different kinds of violence are aimed at politicians. 
in my mind, I tend to divide them into two broad categories of things, and, and these might not be the right categories, but there are some attacks on politicians that are very personal, that the, the attack is because of a particular personal grievance with the politician, either something that they've you know done in their personal lives or something that they did or didn't do in their professional lives. So we have violence against politicians for appointing or not appointing somebody to some kind of political office and a disappointed office holder, uh, office seeker, uh, targeting a politician. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, right? Um, The most famous, of course, is the uh, assassination of President Garfield uh, in 1881 uh, by Charles Jateau, a person who um, seems to have... uh, believed he deserved an ambassadorship to France or Germany or a series of other countries based on a speech he gave on Garfield's behalf during the campaign in 1880. And when he doesn't get it, um, he, he assassinates President Garfield on the supposition that Chester Arthur will then appoint him to some kind of uh, political position. It didn't work out so well for him. He ends up getting uh, hanged. But there's a bunch of, of those kinds of, of, of grievances that are directed at, at Obviously, Garfield as a president, but mayors and governors and, and, and various other kinds of things. Um, and then I think you've got the ones that are more ideologically driven, right? The, where, 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 the, where the violence or the threat of violence is driven less by the, the specifics of the person, but by uh, uh, an ideology that sees what that person represents as being dangerous uh, in some ways. And so we can think about all the and looking at this sort of second category, I think they fall into certain particular time periods in American history where it becomes very common. You know, in the eighteen fifties through Reconstruction, there's a huge amount of violence targeting against politicians, depending on how one wants to define politicians. And I think we're also in one of those periods right now, in which um, it's not as bad as as it was in the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies, but it's. Uh, much more violent now than it has been in, in some other periods of time. It is, although one thing that struck me, and I want, I want to choose my words carefully here because I think we are in a dangerous moment, and I think the, the, the mm-hmm. number of threats and the, you know, the, the, the measurable threats that, that I cited before mm. indicate that. But in doing the research for this episode, I was struck. Now, it might just be that security wasn't as good in the mm. past. It, how many politicians have been attacked and in many cases killed in a, in American mm. history and and there are the famous you know assassinations mm. uh, that, that that most of our listeners will know but but you know I'm also talking about mayors and governors mm. and local political officials and um, you know again in your period in particular I, you, from 1865 to 1901 to take the most obvious mm. measure three presidents were assassinated in a 36 year period yes. That's a lot, that and then what? and and then the le- the level below that is pretty substantial. Oh, it, it's huge, right? And and, it, and now a lot of that's tied up with Reconstruction and the and the the, the, the violence in the aftermath of the Civil War. Mm. I know that, but but there's a huge amount of political violence then, resulting in serious injuries or deaths. In the 1930s, you get you know Huey Long is mm. assassinated. The the governor of Louisiana. There's an attack on uh, Franklin Roosevelt, well, yeah. in which the mayor of Chicago was was killed yeah, in the right. same attack. I mean there are, and then of course we have the 1960s. Thankfully, 
and again, where we have the huge exception of January 6th, mm. we haven't seen anything on that scale yet. Hopefully you, you, we won't. You, you, Hopefully yeah, we won't. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to downplay the significance mm. of the attack on, on Paul Pelosi, mm. but uh, we've had a lot of rhetoric. We haven't yet had the same degree of violence directed at individuals. Again, I'm, I'm choosing mm. my words carefully because I, I think we are in a perilous moment. I don't want to downplay that, mm. but I was maybe maybe I should frame this another way. I was struck by how violent it's been, been in the past. past. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, a couple. Sorry, of, is that fair? You no, know, I think it's. I think I think you're right that there. You know, the politics was used to be a lot more violent than it is now. Um, you know, and thinking about Reconstruction, um, there is a tremendous amount of political violence targeting politicians during Reconstruction. I'll just give. A couple of examples. There was a congressman by the name of James Hines, um, who was campaigning in 1868 in in Arkansas. He was um, a radical Republican who was born in New York, lived his most of his adult life in, in Minnesota, comes to Arkansas after uh, the Civil War, and becomes one of the sort of most prominent advocates of of black civil rights in Arkansas. He is running for re-election in, in 1868, so it's an election year, uh, and he and uh, his companion um, are shot at, and he is he is killed. Um, and a couple years later, there's a famous example of a guy named John Stevens, who is usually called Chicken Stevens, because uh, he there's an incident earlier in his life where he killed a bunch of chickens, uh, who is killed by the Klan uh, in 1870 uh, in North Carolina. You know what's interesting about both of these cases. Both of them are killed by clan or clan adjacent groups, but in both cases, their deaths prompted a military response by the local government against the perpetrators of the violence. You know, and so in some ways, it's a act of violence that then culminates in more violence um, in in retaliation for it. Um, you know, and in some in some ways, what what instigators of violence want is they want not only to kill a particular, hurt a particular person, but to cause a series of events to escalate in that in that way because they think that's going to play to their advantage. Well, some of them do because again, I think we have to think about categories Which, of perpetrators. Purpose, yes, but I think for the people who are are working through, you know this ideological kinds of violence, I think there, there is often a thought that, look, if this will be the, the trigger for the next um, you know, phase of escalating violence. One thing, though, about, you, you know, you noted that, that how much violence there is in the 19th century. Part of this has to do with how accessible politicians were then, right? That there was very little security, and there was a supposition in the 19th century of two things. One is they thought assassinations and political violence were un-American. They thought this in the first half of the 19th century. The second half of the 19th century realized it isn't true. But they thought, look, in a republic, we don't have a need for resorting to assassinations. That's something that happens in European dictatorships where people don't have any alternative but to resort to violence. Here we are enlightened people with enlightened citizens. They can talk to their politicians and elect new people if they are displeased with uh, who is holding office uh, without needing to resort to violence. Obviously, that's not the case, but that's an argument that was made. But the second thing that I think that they really thought was that politicians needed to be accessible to their citizens. 
and that they needed to people be need, need to be able to go up and talk to their leader elected leaders including you know the president of the united states you know so it used to be relatively easy to waltz into the white house and say hi i want to talk to the president about whatever it is or talk to your members of congress or your governor you know thinking about the assassinations that happened in, in the 19th century or the other sort of act they're often done at very close range you know lincoln is assassinated uh in the theater you know from from a point blank shot um garfield is likewise shot shot at very close range mckinley is also shot you know when he's shaking somebody's hand right and so the idea that politicians need to be accessible is i think part of the reason why violence was so frequent is because because people who wanted to do harm to politicians had that sort of level of access that that nobody has right now yeah what we thought was the first attempt to assassinate a president is uh the attempt on on andrew jackson that took place on january 30th 1835 oh that's a fascinating case uh, by a man named richard lawrence who attempted to shoot jackson at uh but jackson was attending a funeral in the yeah. capital so do you have more to say well, about well, that so, case? So that and, guy, and sorry, is that the first I think attempted so. assassination? So the guy tries to shoot Jackson. The gun misfires, right. doesn't go off. Jackson, who at that point is like seventy something and not in good health, you know, he was a <laughs> he'd been shot before. He'd been shot before, <laughs> but he was like a frail, like you know, rel- he then proceeds to beat this guy with his cane, you know, in self defense, and, and like other members of the cabinet have to pull him off. So, Mister President, you really. We, we really shouldn't beat this guy to death. Um, you know, I think it says something about Jackson as a pugnacious figure. But uh, but but, but I, I want to go back to the prehistory, but before we do that, I think you've raised a good point about accessibility of politicians. Because even in the recent past, uh, you know, there were a number of attempts. Mm. There, there are a number of attempts to assassinate Gerald Ford, which kind of mystifies mm. me. Uh, part of that is, well, politics in the 70s were kind of crazy. But, but again, even as recently as then, mm. politicians were relatively... Accessible. Reagan in, sure. in the early 80s. Um, in terms of members of Congress, members of Congress do not receive security protection from the Capitol Police or anybody else unless they're in leadership positions. So the Speaker of the House mm. does, the Leader of the Opposition. These kinds of figures do. Prominent figures do. Um, but it's not routine. And mm. so they have to provide their own security What's happened in recent years is they are allowed to spend campaign money on security. So Raphael Warnock, who's mm. who's who's uh, currently the senator, one of the senators from Georgia and campaigning for re-election, um, has spent nine hundred thousand dollars on his security this year. The next the next highest uh, in the Senate is Ted Cruz. So here we have a bipartisan thing. Warnock mm. is a Democrat. Cruz is, is is a Republican. Cruz has spent six hundred thousand dollars on on his security. So we have members of Congress providing their own security, and um, they could change that. They could vote to give themselves mm. higher security, but there's probably a reluctance on their part to do so because uh, it doesn't reflect well on them when they give themselves what appear to be perks. Yes, and whether security is a perk or not is debatable. Whether it's a, you know mm. one could argue it's a necessity. So there's there's that aspect of it, uh, but also. It might not be in their best interest to acknowledge, particularly those who've been stoking some of this violent mm. rhetoric, that the situation has become more, more sure. dangerous. So, so I, I was surprised that at least the president, for example, is virtually untouchable at this point. Yes. Um, and, and I imagine people in senior leadership positions... Uh, 
I'm shaking my head now, which doesn't make for a very good broadcast. <laughs> but uh, you know, Paul Pelosi might might disagree mm-hmm. with this interpretation because Nancy Pelosi is the most threatened person in the country, apparently, the uh, politician in the country. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the, the you know, where's Nancy that that the attackers said you know echoes all the things from from January. 6th. That's right. So so but but senior figures are difficult mm-hmm. to get to, but but. Local politicians in particular, but even members of Congress are, yeah. are still pretty vulnerable. Yeah, and, and thinking about the threats to, to local politicians, I think that's one of the things that, that's really quite scary about this current moment because, you know, presidents, of course, have always gotten or often gotten threats, but the local election workers right now, the, the people who are filling political roles, either elected or appointed, um, School board members, members right? All the kinds of people who are being threatened, yes, you know, and that the sort of the, the lowest level of, of elected officials and, and, and political office holding, you know, the kinds of threats they're getting now, those, those are largely unprecedented unless you go back to Reconstruction when you have... Like, yeah, so I guess I would qualify my earlier statement, mm-hmm. and again, I, w- I don't want that misconstrued, that there haven't been that many, as many attacks as one might mm-hmm. suspect in historic terms... I think what we have seen, mm. because of the escalation of rhetoric in the past five years, coupled with an increased mm. number of threats, is it's had a, it's having a chilling effect right, right. on the operation of democracy and the day-to-day running of the country. And to some extent, it's only luck so far that we haven't seen mm. more violence. So again, I don't I don't want to be yeah. Pollyanna-ish about this, but I want to I want to before we move on, mm. I want I want to go back a little bit because and and consider when this. Started because there was violence in the earlier parts of American history. There mm. was political violence aimed at politicians, which is mm. our focus today. But it tended to be of of kind of two types. It seems to me politicians engaging in violence with each other. Mm. And Joanne Freeman, who's a friend of the pod mm. and and uh, historian at Yale, looked at this. Yeah, the Field of Blood book. If you haven't read, it, is amazing. Go. Yeah, but even before yeah, that, her yeah. first book, oh, Affairs sure. of Honor, talked. You know, really went into kind of dueling culture. So you know, we have famous mm. examples. The most famous, of course, is Aaron Burr killing Alexander Hamilton. Mm. But there was a famous fight in Congress in the 1790s involving two congressmen, where one is using a cane, the other some tongs from the. Uh, fireplace in the House of Representatives and they're hitting each other. There's a famous illustration of this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And there are numerous duels and Mm. Andrew Jackson fights them. So there are, there is violence in the earlier period, but as Joanne has shown Mm. in recreating this culture, I think, it's contained in a certain Mm. way. There's a kind of expectation in in kind of dueling culture in particular, Mm. like, okay, some violence is acceptable, but there are rules. But there are rules. There are rules. And what you what you don't get as much are disgruntled office holders attacking somebody or, mm. or somebody possibly mentally ill attacking politicians. You get a little bit. So so David Ramsey, who's a uh, one of the earliest historians of the American Revolution, was a veteran of the Continental Army, was a local office holder and a medic. He was a doctor mm. in South Carolina is assassinated, arguably he's murdered, in, in 1815. He seems, though, to have been murdered by a disgruntled patient rather than, you know, he, was, he, was, he, he held a series of local offices, and that's back to your first category that you began with a kind of personal grievance. Yeah. So David Ramsey might have been murdered anyway. Right, yeah, um, whether he held that office or not. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 uh, but we don't get much of this. When does it start? Does it well, start with, with the second half of the 19th century? Is it all your fault, David? It, it, <laughs> I take no responsibility for the choices people made 150 years ago. Um, you know, thinking about 
the early republic, you know, that's it's a tremendously violent society, right? And so there is a tremendous amount of violence above and beyond violence aimed at politicians. There's, sure. there's the violence embedded in slavery. There is violence domestically. You know, there, there is, it's a pretty violent place. Uh, and the revolution, you know, that was, there was some violence embedded in that too, right? Yeah, sure. The, the stuff about, you know, dueling is, 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 is fascinating because they're, they're saying, look, here we're trying to channel violence into particular rules, but it's predicated upon a mutual respect of each other Despite the fact that you're trying to kill each other, right? So if we think about the, the you know, duels, whether it's the Burr Hamilton duel or, or 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 other ones, um, you know, even though they hate each other, that they, they they are buying into sort of a, a common set of, of expectations of here's how gentlemen resolve these kinds of things with with having seconds and trying to have negotiations and you know. Waiting for the other person to be in position before firing, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you get, I think, a different kind of political violence, and I think Joanne Friedman's book on on violence in in, in the antebellum period is, is quite revealing of this, is that when politicians stop seeing each other as legitimate, then you end up with the attacks on you know Charles Sumner, where he's not you know. He, Preston Brooks doesn't challenge Sumner to a duel. He comes up behind him and hits him on the back. Yeah, can you, can you explain that for our listeners? Because this is probably the most famous act of political violence in the 19th century, apart from the Lincoln assassination. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, and, and obviously this is... this for people. Sure. So, sorry, I'll do the, the brief version of... So, uh, this is in uh, 1856. It's in the height of really contentious debates going on in Congress over uh, Kansas, uh, Kansas... Kansas-Nebraska Act has just been passed. There's violence breaking out in Kansas. Charles Sumner, who is the basically the only real abolitionist in the Senate, gives a speech uh, on the Senate decrying the affairs in Kansas. He calls it the crime against Kansas. And he calls out a couple of, of Democratic Southern politicians in particular. Preston Brooks, who was a South Carolina congressman and who was related to one of the people that Sumner called out, uh, goes to this, crosses from the House into the Senate, goes onto the floor of the Senate, and proceeds to beat uh, Charles Sumner over the head with a, his, he had a gutta percha cane, and proceeds to beat him repeatedly, uh, leaving Sumner in, in, I mean, in some ways actually sort of reminds me of the attack on Paul Pelosi. You know, he's got a cracked crack skull, he's been bleeding profusely, and, you know, he is... Uh, he doesn't die, but he has to sort of take a leave of absence from the Senate for, I think, three years um, before he's able to, to return. Um, and even after that, he seems to have had some ill effects from, from this attack. You know, and what I think it speaks to is, is the, the kinds of, of you know, that, that if Congress is supposed to be, or politicians with different viewpoints, can work out their differences with words. Um, you know, the beating of, of, of Charles Sumner nearly to death is indicative of, of the fact that, that a few years before the Civil War, uh, some people thought that, that words were no longer sufficient means of, of dealing uh, with one's political opponents. Um, and there's, as Joanne Friedman's book points out, people are carrying guns onto the floor of Congress, and sometimes they're carrying guns because they want to shoot somebody, and sometimes they're carrying guns because they realize everybody else is carrying guns, 
and they might need to defend themselves. Um, so one of our classes of violence then is violence between politicians. Yeah, but, but, but the, the thing about, you know, that I think makes the attack on Sumner different is that Sumner was writing at his desk, right? Which makes it very different than the, you know, Burr-Hamilton duel or something where, where both the guys are armed. Right, right? sure. Yeah. Um, but then I guess there's a different class of violence, which is violence directed at politicians, mm. which comes from essentially members of the public, right? Mm. People who aren't in the club. Sure. <laughs> um, and, and on one hand, one could argue that, well, violence between politicians is one season in the 1850s mm. is evidence, as you've suggested, mm. of a system that's broken down or a system that no longer works. So that, that, that's its own pathology. Whereas we have a kind of social pathology when members of the public are so angry mm. or so disturbed or whatever that they feel motivated to go. You know, this this individual who attacked Paul Pelosi was looking for the Speaker of the House. He was, you know, was going to wait for her to come back and take her prisoner, supposedly. Mm. Um, you know, so so you have a kind of member of the public who feels so angry that they're 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 mm. identifying and 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 uh, threatening a, a, a political official. Mm. So they're slightly different. Yes. Of course, we also, because of the turnover in the House of Representatives and in office generally, we have you know, there's a fine line between somebody who's a member of the public one day and is an office holder the next. Sure. So, so it's not necessarily, uh, it's not a hard and fast boundary. It is striking to me, thinking through all these examples of, of violence that, that happens that where they're, where they're sort of is ideologically driven, how many of these happen in election years? And how many of these happen close to an election or when the person is campaigning, right? And so, which makes me worry about Tuesday, uh, but thinking about, you know, when do these sort of cycles of violence, and it tends to be either immediately before an election or immediately after an election, uh, in which there seems to be an uptick in this kind of ideologically driven violence. Um, yeah, although in a system where you have major elections every two years and mm. the election cycle now never stops, stops right? Uh, maybe that maybe that timing isn't as relevant or, or yeah, isn't what, as but, revealing as, as it seems. But but they tend to be in, in the context of very contentious elections. So, you know, thinking about the ones that happened in 1868 and 1870, they are often happening like while the, per, you know, weeks before the, the, the campaign, the elections happen. Um you know, and the nature of campaigning has obviously changed pretty dramatically uh, over the past 200 years um, in as much as people are campaigning all the time now. Yeah, and of course, most famously, of course, is 1968 mm. when you get the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. King. Right, um, and, and then Kennedy's happens at a campaign event in Los Angeles, um, you know, in, in June, so... Uh, well, and it also goes to your your issue of accessibility, or the the, mm. the, the comment about accessibility, rather, not issue, mm. uh, in the sense that office holder, particularly presidents, mm. aren't that accessible, except when they're running for office, office, or when they're candidates to run for office, when you really do have to put yourself, yourself out and meet people. Sure. No, I think that's right. And you know, one of the things that's, that's worrying me about this particular moment, and listeners know that I worry about a lot of things... Um, is that politicians are rightfully fearful of violence. I think there's, the, given that the, the threat of violence that the politicians are right, and, and they are shutting themselves off from the public as a consequence of this. And, 
And one of the ways we know this is because journalists have said, look, politicians are far less accessible than they used to be. We used to know what their schedule was a day ahead of time. And now we often know, don't know about political events until maybe an hour ahead of time. And even then they are highly vetted and they're in and they're out and they don't take interviews. And they don't, you know, and part of that has to do with developments happening um, with the media. But I think it also has to do with, with debates that are happening, you know, within campaigns about, you know, how, how much out in front do we want people to be. And the chilling effect of, of these threats of violence, I think, has a you know, profound effect on people's willingness to serve in political office. You know, whether it's in high political office in Congress or something, but especially in these um, lower tier but, but no less significant positions in the school board, as you point out, and, and board of electors, that... You know, the, the reward you get for serving those offices doesn't seem like it's worth the risk for many people anymore of, of doing that. Yeah, we don't know who doesn't run for office because, because of these threats and because of this mm. climate of, of, of violence. Yeah. Um, that, and, and so there, there's a cost. Again, I don't want to... My earlier comment mm. was not meant to downplay mm. the significance of violence. I think it does have a chilling effect, and this is one area. Mm. Is this an area where we might find a bipartisan way ahead. So the two most notorious recent examples of violence against members of Congress prior to the, the mm. attack on Paul Pelosi were probably the shooting of, of Gabrielle Giffords in, in 2011 in Arizona mm. um, at an event which was, was a mass shooting. Six people were killed then and she was severely injured. And then six years later in, two seven, in 2017, the uh, shooting um, at a congressional uh, Republican softball practice in 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 Washington or in suburban Washington mm. in in Virginia, uh, where Steve Scalise, a Republican congressman from Louisiana, was was badly wounded. Mm. Uh, so we to take those two and those are the two most I think uh, prominent recent examples. They're bipartisan. Yeah, you know, we, Gabrielle Giffords was is a Democrat. Uh, Steve Scalise is a Republican. The threats, as the evidence revealed by the New York Times, uh, reported by the New York Times recently shows, uh, are bipartisan. The, mm -hmm. you know, there are threats from both sides. They seem to predominate slightly more in terms of the indictable offenses uh, coming from the right to the left, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. All of the, 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 the 535 members of the House and, and Senate all face this threat. Yeah. They face these threats regardless of, of their political persuasion and their backgrounds. So isn't this something that might actually bring them together? I don't want to sound like, a, you know, a, like this is going to be a kumbaya moment, mm. but isn't is there some hope that maybe this is the kind of thing that might get them to say, you know, hang on a second, maybe we ought to tap down the rhetoric and maybe we ought to, maybe we need a rethink of where we're going. Yeah, that's a good question. And and one of the things that struck me in the aftermath of, of the attack on Paul Pelosi is what the response on the right was to, to that attack. I mean, there were some people who said, look, we condemn all violence. No one should be attacked in their home, et cetera, et cetera. But then there were some other responses from the right, which I'm not going to justify by repeating, um, you know, which which suggested either that he deserved to be attacked or, or some other kind of weird conspiratorial thinking. Um, 
and so I'm, I'm maybe less optimistic than you are that, that these kinds of attacks are going to lead to um, a, a meaningful coming together to, 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 to reject political violence. Um, yeah, there does seem to be some discussion about having increased security paid for by the government, as you point out, um, to, to protect members of Congress and their families. Um, but that may actually be, in my way of thinking, you know, potentially detrimental to the um, accessibility of politicians in a republic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've seen a lot of those responses you're, you're mm. alluding to. Mm. I mean, to some extent, they were the predictable responses from the predictable people. Uh, and they weren't necessarily, they were from figures on the right, mm. but not necessarily office holders on mm. the right. Um, and so maybe there's an opportunity, you know, again, I think members of Congress might recognize their common cause here. Yeah, maybe. One thing, though, that, that occurs to me in thinking about the violence that's targeting politicians is embedded within that threat is a, is a parallel threat to voters, right? That sure. When you're know, thinking about going back to Reconstruction, when the Klan attacks Republicans in the South, they are simultaneously threatening Republican voters, either implicitly or explicitly, in most cases explicitly. And I'm, and I'm, I think we see some evidence that there is a parallel threat to voters today. I'm thinking specifically about the accounts we have in Arizona that are being pushed by some politicians for people to go and observe ballot drop boxes. Right. People are showing up in tactical gear with, you know, assault rifles to protect the ballot box. But you know, that was a, a rhetoric that was used in Reconstruction too, albeit with less effective, although no means less deadly weapons. Um, you know, and and I think there's there's you know when we think about the the violence directed at politicians, I think it's it's hard to divorce it from broader concerns about about you know does this not only intimidate people from running from office, but does it intimidate people from showing up to the polling place and, and voting, and what does that mean then for the sort of broader health of uh, Republican small R institutions? Yeah, I think that's a. Totally legitimate concern of yours, David. Uh, the one thing I would say is we had a very similar conversation two years ago. Mm. And the 2020 election, well, first of all, the 2020 election <laughs> was one of the fairest elections the United States has ever had. <laughs> but, yes. But, okay, let me finish. Okay, David, okay. Let me finish, please. <laughs> um, there wasn't violence in 2020. There were threats of violence. There was very similar rhetoric and there were very similar... Uh, there was violence after the election, but there was not violence in, in terms of the conduct of the election. Mm. And you and I, I, I distinctly remember this, had a very similar conversation yes. right before that election. There was violence during the election season, not just on election day. And as much as election day doesn't exist anymore as a thing. Um, you know, and... I mean, one of the intriguing things right now, obviously, with thinking about this election coming forward on, on uh, Tuesday, is that for half of people voting on Tuesday or have already voted, there are people on the ballot they can vote for who deny that Biden won the election. You know, so there are people on on ballots in half the states that 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 are running and have serious chance of winning office that are election deniers, which I think is is a, a 
I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting thing about where we are as, as, a, as a political moment. And well, legitimacy what's, your, what's your well, solution to that? I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I'm, apart from wringing your hands, hands what's your point? point. I, I'm just very concerned. And I think that's, yeah. That, 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 you know, the legitimacy of elections, Republic, republics only work if people see elections as legitimate. And if they start to elect people who see elections as illegitimate, then you stop having, you know, the, 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 we end up in a weird kind of spiral about, uh, you know, is the will of the people being reflected in the people that get elected and in the policies that they enact? Um, sure, but there's also a paradox here because they are, uh, these are people running, running for, for office. office. So exactly. at some level, they must believe the, the system, system is legitimate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a real, it, there's an inherent paradox there and an inherent mm. contradiction. Oh, I think you're right. And, and this is why some of them struggle with the rhetoric on this because they don't want to, you know, so some of them are already getting their ducks in a row to complain that next week's election mm -hmm. is illegitimate. Except for them. In the event they lose. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but if they win, you know, so it's... Well, it's well, Trump did the same thing yeah. in 2020, right? That he said if he wins, he'll accept the results of the election. And... Uh, yeah, I, the one thing about Trump is he's kind of sweet, generous. You know, some of these people are not, they're not Trump. I mean, they're... they're they're Trump acolytes, and mm. they some are, some of them are worse than Trump in their beliefs. But they don't have Trump's ability to kind of craft a message and bend the will of a certain percentage of the population to the same extent. That that's a that's kind of a unique set of circumstances yes. to Trump. Now it's it's infected his entire party. I reckon, mm. I accept that. And some of them are, you know, I think Carrie Lake, the, the, the gubernatorial candidate mm. in, in Arizona, is both very interesting and very scary because she's a very skilled communicator mm. uh, and is saying a lot of those things. But a lot of, you know, Herschel Walker is not a skilled communicator. No. Um, he may still win, uh, but, but, but there's a, there is a slightly different issue. So, so I agree with you. I think mm. there, there's, I've got concerns around the election. The, 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 the issue mm. of violence, which we've discussed, is certainly there, and the violent rhetoric is part of that. The attack on Paul Pelosi has to be mm. seen in the context of the election. I think you made sure. a very good point about that. Uh, I think it remains to be seen. We're, we're going to have to see how well the election deniers do next week. Yes. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a fat, you know, midterm elections are, are interesting moments, and I think this will be a particularly unusual and potentially pivotal midterm. And uh, we should say that um, we both wish that Paul Pelosi gets a a quick and, and speedy recovery from his attack. He's yes, apparently he's leaving the hospital, hospital today. Day, yes, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure he's getting the best of medical care. I met him. You did? Last Tell me, year. how did you meet him? <laughs> I met him at Edinburgh University last November during the COP26 yeah, okay. in, in Glasgow. There was a congressional delegation that came to, to visit Edinburgh University for a reception, and I was able to go to the, attend that reception. And I said hello to Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and oh. Paul Pelosi was very, very nice. I introduced myself. He said, are you Italian-American? I said, yes. So we <laughs> bonded over that. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's a striking figure. He's very tall. Hmm. He's, he's very tall and, and uh, um, very distinguished looking. Quite a, kind of, uh, yeah, he, he, has, he has presence. Um, and and uh, 82 years old. He looks very good for good 82. 82 years old. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I look half yeah. that good you know, if, if I live that long. Right. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? So I want to uh, kind of a follow up on a, I I, I made a, had a last drop a few I don't know, I can't remember a couple months ago 
about some uh, Revolutionary War archaeological um, finds in, in, I believe it was New Jersey then, or mm. Pennsylvania. Uh, this is another one from Pennsylvania. There was a story widely reported this week, and I'm citing a, a story from WESA, which is Pittsburgh's NPR station, but the, the story was widely reported, so you can find it in lots of different uh, media, about the discovery of a prisoner of war camp from the Revolution outside York, Pennsylvania which housed soldiers who were first captured at Saratoga. So they were from the Convention Army, mm. uh, Burgoyne's Convention Army, that ended up getting moved all over the place. They went to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then they were down in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then some of them were in York. Uh, but so, so some, some of those um, soldiers from Saratoga were, were kept there, but there were also soldiers held there after the Yorktown campaign. Okay. Of course, people always perceive See, Yorktown as the end yeah. of the war, and it's not. Mostly at the end of the war. They don't know that, though. Yeah, yeah, to be sure. So, therefore, they're, they're holding the prisoners, mm -hmm. so they don't realize that. And so there were several thousand soldiers from both uh, Saratoga and Yorktown held um, at this site outside of uh, near near York, Pennsylvania. The lead archaeologist on this on this dig is a man named John Cromer. Cromer, C-R-A-W-M-E-R. -E so I want to make sure I give him uh, due... Uh, uh, credit and his team, and they're gonna they're planning a big dig, I think next next summer to to oh. really uh, so yeah so very cool interesting yeah so archaeology where where we have colleagues in the school of history classics and archaeology so we colleagues we, and good friends yes yeah, so so shout out to the archaeologists what about you David what do uh, you have well, I want to recommend a, a book that seems I think relevant to our conversation today and it's a book actually I discussed with some of our MSc students uh, this morning it's Kelly Carter Jackson's Force and Freedom which was published, I think, in 2019. So it's not a new book, but it's a new-ish book. Uh, and it's a book that looks at black abolitionists and black abolitionists' thoughts about violence and, and when the use of violence was legitimate and the ways in which, in the lead-up to the Civil War, black abolitionists increasingly articulated a, a justification for the use of violence against slave catchers and, and, and against uh, uh, as a tool to overthrow slavery. Uh, it's a very, it's a fascinating book to, to think about when the use of violence in a political context is legitimate, and obviously it's, you know, relevant in the conversation today about about when and, and if violence is ever uh, justified. Great, great. So Excellent, I highly recommend David. the book. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. <laughs>